When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I didn't get up early for the coronation of Charles III. Maybe some of you did. I did not. But when I rolled out of bed at 7 a.m. and turned on the live stream on YouTube of the service, just in time to see the Archbishop of Canterbury placing the crown on Charles's head, I figured I might as well keep watching for a while. And I was staying over at a friend's house who lives in Michigan. My friends have three girls, a five-year-old, a three-year-old, and a one-year-old, and the five and three-year-olds were all over the coronation service. We sat on the kitchen floor, one of them on either side of me, looking at my phone in the middle. That, I said, pointing at Charles, is a real king. And that, I said, pointing at Camilla, is a real queen. They lost their minds when I pointed at Kate and said, and that's a real princess. <laughs> they, of course, don't have a king and queen in Michigan. They were rather awed by the fact that I kind of do. But not everyone, of course, was as excited about the coronation as this five and three-year-old were. Outside the palace, outside Westminster Abbey, were protesters chanting, not my king, over and over. 
There's a growing movement in England of anti-monarchists who believe the time has come for England to become a republic with an elected head of state. They see the monarchy as being outdated and expensive and not truly democratic. It should be possible, they say, for anyone to be the head of state, not just those born into a certain family. Now, whatever you think about the monarchy, there is, believe it or not, a connection here with our story from Pentecost. Because the story of Pentecost is, in essence, a story of the democratization of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is not a new thing coming into Acts chapter 2. People have been anointed by the Spirit for centuries. But those anointings have always been rather rare, singular events. Samuel anointing David with oil. The Spirit coming upon the judges. The gifting of the Spirit to Bezalel, empowering him to produce magnificent art for the tabernacle. We hear stories of individuals anointed by the Spirit, those who are called out, those who are selected, who are held in high esteem. It's never something that all the people got to participate in. But then, somewhere around 500 BC, a prophet named Joel says something rather startling. There will come a time, he says, when God will pour out his spirit on all people, sons and daughters, young men and old men, women and children, there will be no distinction or special favoring. Everyone will be filled with the spirit. And about 500 years after Joel makes this prophecy, it comes true. It happens on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is another name for the Feast of Weeks, which is one of the three solemn feasts in the Jewish year that required all Jewish men to come to Jerusalem. Luke tells us that on this day, they were all together in one place. And most scholars believe that the all together here refers back to chapter 1, verse 14, which describes the makeup of the followers of Jesus who returned from the Mount of Olives after Jesus ascended into heaven. And it describes that group of people as being the apostles, the women and the mother of Jesus, Jesus' brothers, and an additional group of people numbering about 120. And as they sit together, presumably waiting and praying as Christ had instructed them before he ascended, their senses are alight with change. A violent wind sweeps into the room, swirling about, and what looks like tongues of fire separate and come to rest above each of them. At once, all of them gathered together are filled with the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in different languages. Now, remember, on Pentecost, on this Feast of Weeks, Jews from all over the world came to Jerusalem to give sacrifices to the temple. 
So it comes to be that there are Medes and Mesopotamians, Egyptians, Asians, and Arabs all milling about when they start to hear people, a bunch of backwards hillbilly Galileans, no less, speaking their own language. The apostles are presumably preaching the good news of the gospel, but folks who are hearing them are a little bit confused. And so we get that great little accusation of all of them being drunk at nine o'clock in the morning. So Peter unpacks it for those who are gathered, and he does so using the words of Joel. The implication Luke is making then is that we are in the last days as foretold by Joel, and the Spirit has come upon all people without distinction. The Spirit is no longer reserved for those chosen few. All have received the power of God to preach the gospel unto the very ends of the earth. And we normally tell this story with a really triumphant tone to it, which is not wrong. The Spirit empowers us, we profess, and is always with us now to comfort us and to guide us. That is very true. But what is also true is that now the Spirit presents us with a problem. I mean, had the Spirit never come, the apostles could very well have gone back to their lives. James and John and Peter and Andrew could have gone back to their fishing boats. Matthew could have applied for a job at the bank. Life could have gone back to the way it was before it was interrupted by this man called Jesus. Their only instruction from Jesus was to wait for the Spirit to come upon them. And if it didn't come, they could have made it moved on, which would have made their lives a whole lot simpler. But the Spirit did come and presented them with a problem because now they don't belong just to themselves. Now they don't just have their own lives to think about. Now the Spirit is calling them into something calling them into a life of preaching, of ministry, of healing, of traveling to the ends of the earth, and ultimately, of dying. The Spirit is presenting them with a problem. In 2011, David Brooks wrote an excellent op-ed for the New York Times, a letter to graduating students in which he presents them with a problem. He notes, correctly, that almost every graduation speech follows roughly the same pattern. Pursue happiness, dream big, express yourself, the world is your oyster and is yours for the taking. Graduation speeches, he writes, are litanies of expressive individualism. We send our grads off into the world amid rapturous talk of limitless possibilities. But this waxing eloquent about individual choices and possibilities makes it harder for people to make what Brooks calls sacred commitments. 
We bounce around from place to place, from person to person, from experience to experience, all in an effort to discover ourselves and to dedicate ourselves only to what makes us happy and fulfilled. And finally, maybe finally, once we've discovered who we are, then we can settle down. But all of this, says Brooks, doesn't usually lead a person to a sense of fulfillment. Most successful people, he writes, don't look inside and then plan a life. They look outside and find a problem which summons their life. Most people don't form a self and then lead a life. They are called by a problem and the self is constructed gradually by their calling. The tasks of life, not the self, are the center. The purpose of life is not to find yourself. It is to lose yourself. It has a remarkably Christian ring to it, doesn't it? Die to self so we might live to Christ. It makes me think of an essay a Calvin student wrote a few years ago that I think I've mentioned here before, where she took a bit of issue with the phrase of Frederick Beekner that all Calvin students have memorized by day two. Vocation is where our deep gladness meets the world's deep need. And the student noted, I think correctly, that what this does for students is present them with this idea that somewhere in the distance is this glimmering dot where those two things, the world's deep need and our great passion, meet in some perfect conjunction. And if we can just get to that dot, we will be fulfilled. We will find our purpose. So we spend our college years, and then quite likely many years after that, trying to figure out what exactly our deep gladness is. What is it that brings me joy? What work makes me excited to get up in the morning? What is it that I love? What is it that doesn't actually feel like work? What is my vocation? Some of us figure this out, but many of us still groan on Monday mornings when the alarm goes off. And we still look at jobs that are more glamorous than ours, or that pay a little better than ours, or that feel like they might be a better fit than ours. And we follow Instagram posts about people who make money by traveling around the world all year. And we think, well, that certainly seems like deep gladness to me. And we never feel like we quite reach that glowing dot off in the distance. There's always something better, something more, something else we think we should do. And so we dart around from place to place and job to job. And then we reach a point in our lives where uh, perhaps after finding that thing that we really love and do well, and then we have to retire. And we sit around and we wonder, well, now if I am not doing that thing that I loved, that thing that was my vocation, am I doing any good at all? So I wonder if we need to spin, with all of the love and respect I have for Frederick Buechner, I wonder if we need to spin this quote just a little differently. Perhaps I would phrase it this way. Vocation is where 
meeting the world's deep need calls us into deep gladness. Which means that vocation is therefore not about our own passions first and foremost, or our own desires, or figuring out what it is in life that will make us feel truly fulfilled before we go and do it. Vocation is not even necessarily about our jobs or our careers. It's looking around our world and our communities and our neighborhoods and saying, where is there a problem? And how can I step into the work of the Spirit in meeting that problem? Which means that vocation within the kingdom of God is a thing offered and made possible for all people. At Pentecost, the Spirit came upon a large group of people, men, children, widows, retirees, women who had lost children, fishermen and bankers, and called them into the work of the kingdom. You didn't need to be a king or a judge or specially set apart by God for some task. The Spirit came upon all people. And this is true of us now. It doesn't matter if you were baptized today, or eight years ago, or 80 years ago. It doesn't matter if you are six or 65. It doesn't matter if you've spent your whole life in one career, or if you have no idea what your career is going to look like. It doesn't matter if you have a steady job, or if you've had to step away from work to raise kids, or if you're having difficulty finding work. The Spirit calls us all into the work of the kingdom. To be people of Pentecost is to look around our communities and ask, who needs to hear good news? Where is there need? And how is the Spirit prompting me to use the resources and the gifts God has given me to bear God's love in this particular corner of the world. The truth of it is that we do not do this perfectly because we are, even with the gifts and resources God has given us, imperfect people. That's okay. The Holy Spirit invites us into the work of the kingdom because it is the Spirit doing that work, setting a course, making things possible, working in us. The royal family has a rather long list of strict rules that they have to follow at all times. They are not allowed to eat shellfish. I don't particularly disagree with that rule. <laughs> Two heirs can't travel together at any time. If they wear a coat to an engagement, they have to keep that coat on the entire engagement. And no one in the royal family is allowed to play Monopoly. I don't know why, <laughs> but they're not. And so as a five-year-old, the idea of being a princess might appear to be really glamorous. But I'm not so sure I'd want the pressure of it. 
I would just be walking around constantly wondering if I was going to mess something up. That is not our worry. The Spirit calls us into something great, into work that is worthy, into the highest responsibility and also the highest joy of bringing shalom and peace and justice and mercy to communities that are hurting and struggling. And those tasks might sometimes seem too daunting and the possibility of failure too great. But this is the good news of the gift of the Spirit. It is not ultimately up to us. God knows what God is about. And God will use what we offer him in faithfulness. The Spirit will equip and empower us as the Spirit can, as only the Spirit can. Which gives us the luxury of siding with lost causes with the underdog, with the ones whose cases look the most hopeless, and saying, we will stick with you. Because we know that no matter the immediate outcome, our hopes and our future are in God's hands, not our own. So what problem is the Spirit laying before you? What task is God calling you to? What surprises might he have in store for you? You have been filled with the Holy Spirit to answer that call. You have been filled with the Holy Spirit to preach the good news to a broken and hurting world. You have been filled with the Holy Spirit to invite people to live in wonder and awe at the power of God. You have been filled with the Holy Spirit to welcome the outsider, the weary traveler, the outcast into the family of God. You have been filled with the Holy Spirit to share everything you have, your time, your talents, and your treasures, so that those who have little might be filled with good things. You have been filled by the Holy Spirit to be the church the church that God builds, the church that God uses. Would you pray with me? So Lord God, fill us with your spirit. By your spirit, open our eyes to see where you are calling us, what task you are laying before us, and how you have equipped us to meet that task. By your spirit, empower and embolden us to rise up and set forth in faithfulness that we might be your hands and feet in the world. Thank you that the spirit comes upon us all. May we be open to the gifts of all people as we partner together in this family called church. In all things, may we seek to be faithful. May we seek justice and peace and may we live in love. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.